We're in 1 Peter chapter 1 this week. Last week we opened with verse 1. Peter identified himself as an apostle. And he had accepted the role that he was given as an apostle. At first, Peter was apprehensive uh, about how he was going to be able to fill that role, and he questioned himself quite often, but, uh, you know, God told him, feed my sheep, and Peter took that to heart, and, and he went out and started doing that. But As Peter introduces himself, that's something that we should consider for ourselves also. What do we tell people when we introduce ourselves? And sometimes it depends on who the audience is. I know when I'm meeting IT people and people that I work with out in in the industry, I'll introduce myself as maybe a software developer or a computer programmer or something that they can recognize and relate to. They understand who I am. And and some people, I will introduce myself um, as a pastor. You know, we're working on things in the ministry or maybe not even. Maybe it's just in town here. And I don't care if people know that I'm a computer programmer, I would rather them know that I'm a pastor and, um, and, and build that relationship here in town. Others, I, I tell them, you know, my name is Rick Ponzo, servant of Cheryl. <laughs> you, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, which is all true. All of these descriptions fit really well. But the actual, my actual role, my actual description is Rick Ponzo's servant of the living God. All of the other names and titles that I have, while they may be true, they're secondary to my primary role as being a servant of the living God. So while people recognize that we're Christians, they'll view everything we do through the filter of Jesus Christ. You know, when you tell someone you're a Christian, they're going to expect to see something different in our lives, something different in the way we live. They're looking, they're going to pay closer attention. You see, if you told people you were some other religion, they would also look and see, you know, well, what does that religion believe? You know, what, what, are, what does a Buddhist live like? What does someone, you know, that's Muslim live like? You know, what is someone that these other religions live like? And they're going to, but when you identify as a Christian, they're expecting to see Christ-like behavior. They're expecting to see it. And the more they see it, the more they believe what you say you are. If they don't see it, then they question, what is the difference between being a Christian and being a non-Christian? Because if we live our lives like the world lives their lives, then what's the difference? I'm a good person. I do what they do. As a matter of fact, I'm probably a better person than they are because I don't do some of the things that they do. 
And so when we tell someone we're a Christian, they expect to see Christ in everything that we do. Peter was introducing himself as an apostle. And when you have the image of an apostle in your head, you, you kind of picture, well, I know for me, it's someone that wears robes and sandals and they're kind of scraggly, you know, and, and that's what an apostle's. Well, that's an outward image of what, you know, he may have looked like because of the day and age that he lived in. That's what the apparel that they wore back then. But as an apostle, it's someone representing. Apostle is a messenger. It's someone that's representing Jesus Christ and bringing the message of Jesus Christ to the world. And somehow I find it, I would find it unusual if Peter was sharing with people about where he goes to get his mani-ped. You know, where, where he goes to get his feet done and, and you know, where, where he goes for his, you know, for his clothing. And, oh, you know, I, they have a really good sale on red wine over at, you know, and I'm sure that's not what Peter was focused on and what he was interested in. I'm sure that when people met Peter, they knew straight out what he was all about. Now, remember, he was a fisherman. That's what he was all about until Jesus Christ came into his life. He, you know, knew a lot about fish. He probably smelled like fish all the time, you know. And here, his life has changed. We can be more focused on the things of this world than we are about the spiritual condition of the world. I know whenever I watch the news, and I'm watching what's taking place in the world, my concern isn't so much about what law they're passing, what law they're not passing, the things that are getting done in Congress or in the Senate. Those are not my concern. My concern is the impact that it's having on the spiritual community in our country. The impact that it's going to have on our ability to deliver the message of Jesus Christ to the world around us. And the negative impact it's having, basically making a statement that it's not important. And that's what we're hearing more often than not. That the world is telling us our spiritual walk is not important. And they've got it upside down. Our spiritual walk is more important than anything else that's going on in this world because this world is going to end. Eternity lasts forever. So what are we going to do? Are we going to worry more about what's going on here in this world? Are we living more for the world? Or are we putting our mindset in eternity and preparing ourselves for that time? I'm not saying that we shouldn't have fun while we're here on earth. We can't enjoy ourselves. I think Jesus enjoyed himself. I think he did a lot of fun things, you know, and he had great times with the disciples. I believe that he wasn't, you know, just the stick in the mud. Oh, that Jesus, man, don't want to go around him. He's no fun. I believe that he was fun to be around. But it's a completely different kind of fun. 
when, you know what, I love getting together and having potlucks and, and sharing food and fellowshipping with one another. It's a great time. We have a good time, good conversation, and, and then we have a Bible study together. It's great. You know, we really enjoy ourselves, and I like that kind of stuff. I like getting together as believers and fellowshipping one with another. I think that you can never have a bad time, you know, getting together and fellowshipping together in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to be doing a lot of that in heaven, by the way. You know, it's going to be what heaven is all about for eternity. That's what I'm looking forward to. Fellowshipping for a long time. So in Verse 1, Peter went on to tell us who he was writing to. He was writing to the pilgrims then in that time. But he was also writing to us here in the 21st century. He was writing to us, telling us the very things that he was telling them. The word didn't stop back then. It wasn't just for their time. It's for us too. It's for our time. Today's message is titled, The Perfect Inheritance. And in verse 2, we pick back up as Peter tells the pilgrims that he's writing to the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So, here he is opening with the typical opening, grace and peace. This is a normal opening. It's a Greek and a Hebrew um, terms that he's using. So, he's speaking to a large audience in Greek and Hebrew. And the thing is, when you always see these two words, they're always grace followed by peace. Because we can't have peace until we have grace. Peace is just something that... Uh, doesn't come from living in this world. Peace comes through the grace of God. And that's how we can have peace. Peter tells us he's writing to the elect, those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That tells us why we're sitting here today. Because God had foreknowledge of who was going to have a relationship, who was going to receive him as their savior. And he knew ahead of time. And those are the elect. Now, some people have a problem with that. Well, what about the others? You know, what's God doing about them? Well, God gives everyone the choice. Everyone has the ability to decide to believe and follow him, to receive his gift of salvation. It's open to everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so he had foreknowledge. He knows the beginning from the end and he knows all of it. And those are the elect that he chose. And so we say, well, is that fair? Take it up with God. But he's God. He gets to make the rules. So I trust what God is doing is fair. And all we need to do is believe and follow and receive the gift. 
You know, should we get upset if someone else doesn't receive the gift? Well, it would only be unfair if it wasn't offered to them. But it's offered to everyone. And so I believe it is entirely fair. So considering we're the elect, how does the rest of this apply to us? Well, the elect are to be sanctified by the Spirit. That means we're to be separate from the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you, we can't do it on our own. It's too much for us. We can't be separated from the world in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit to give us strength to be separate from the world. And the way we separate ourselves from the world is through obedience in Jesus and by his blood. We don't have to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus physically, but we need to be covered by Jesus' blood spiritually. It has to be a change inside of us. We have to accept. See, he shed his blood to create a new covenant. And that new covenant is the covenant that we live under today. And we either accept the covenant or we can say, I don't want to be under that covenant. So if we're not under the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're still under a covenant, the covenant of the law. And the law is what we would be judged by if we weren't under the covenant of grace. But now we are under the covenant of grace. Jesus died for us so that we would have this new covenant freely given to us and where we no longer have to go through the rituals of animal sacrifice. So this is a powerful opening to the letter, reminding everybody of where we stand in Christ as Christians. That's what Peter wanted to do. He wanted to establish that right away in this letter. We realize that the Christian life needs to be set apart from the world. We should see the evidence in our speech, in our way of life, in all we do, all we say. It should be evident in our lives. If you can't bow your head and give thanks for what you're doing, what you're drinking, what you're eating, if you can't bow your head, if you would feel guilty bowing your head and giving thanks for those things, then you're probably not doing something that God wants you to do. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit is for in our lives. The Holy Spirit is to convict us of what we're doing. And if we're having a problem, if we get so cold to the Holy Spirit, if we get so used to doing things in our own power without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become unaware of the fact that we've moved out of the center of God's will. And he wants to keep us in the center of his will. And we do that by praying. And we should be able to pray at any time. Whatever we're doing, we should be able to pray, Lord, Thank you for this. Thank you for what... But if you're thanking him for something that isn't godly, then you know it's going to convict you. 
it's going to bring conviction to our lives. So that, I believe, is something that prepares us for what's going to happen next in our lives, what God wants to speak to us about next. So Peter then continues in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter opens up and prays to God, and he recognizes God's abundant mercy toward us. And because of his mercy, we have a living hope. And that living hope has a name, Jesus Christ. He is our living hope. And that's where our strength comes from, in that fact, in the hope that we have in him. He was raised from the dead. He first had to die. In obedience to the Lord, he died. He went to the cross because that's what he had to do. Father, if there's any other way, but not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way, Lord, make it possible. And there wasn't. So in obedience, he went to the cross. He didn't want to, but he wanted to follow the will of God. And so that's what kept him to the cross. And because of his obedience, we receive an inheritance. That's amazing. He was obedient, and we are the ones blessed for it. And our inheritance is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It will never fade away. That's something that we don't understand. Everything in this world is fading away. The second law of thermodynamics tells us everything is going from a, a, a period, a, a, an activity, an energy, to non-energy. Everything is going from something sustainable to, to de- being depleted. That's what the second law of therm- thermodynamics is. That's that one law, scientific law, refutes evolution. Because evolution says things are getting better. We are evolving and becoming better. But the law, the scientific law, disproves that. It tells us that we're not getting better. It's like if you bounce a basketball, it doesn't start bouncing more. It doesn't start bouncing further and harder. It bounces until it slows down and then it comes to a stop. And that's what's happening to this world. It's in decay. It's declining. Scientists even believe time is slowing down. And I don't understand all that. And you know what? I don't care. Because I know Jesus Christ is coming back and he has it all in control. God is not saying, oh no, time is slowing down. What did I do wrong? God didn't do anything wrong. It was part of the plan. 
He gave us all the evidence we need that he exists in our universe. It's just evident everywhere. But people get distracted and get confused and then they try to listen to the promises of man rather than what God has. So we're told our inheritance is not here on the earth. You know, it's something that people, you know, try to believe and try to live. There are many churches that teach that, you know, this is God's kingdom is here. We, we need to bring God's kingdom here. Well, there is some truth to that in that we live our lives and we are part of God's kingdom here, right now. We're part of his kingdom. But the world is not his kingdom right now. It's the kingdom of the enemy, of Satan. He's got it for a little while. He's not going to have it forever. Lord's going to come and he's going to take the throne back and he's going to sit himself on the throne. But people think, oh, we're supposed to be living in health and prosperity and all of that. And if we're not, then we're not living as true Christians. And I disagree with that. Our health and prosperity is going to be in eternity. And we're never going to have to worry about the flu again in eternity. But here on earth, you know, we're going to have trials. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have health issues. In verse 5, we're told that we are kept through the power of God through faith. See, Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 2.8. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, the gift of God is this grace that comes to us, is the salvation that we have, is eternity. It's all part of the same gift. And we have this gift by faith. And we're told that God keeps it for us who are kept by the power of God through faith. It's God keeping these things for us so that we don't lose our salvation. We didn't earn it, but it can't be taken away either because it's not something that we have in a safe at home. It's not something where I have a document that says I'm a Christian, so that means that I'm good to go. Oh, if someone steals or if that document gets burned up, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. It's not like that. See, God keeps our salvation. And that's all we need to know to assure us that it's going to be there for us in the future. We're assured by Peter that our inheritance will be revealed in the last time. That's what he says here, that our salvation and our inheritance is going to be revealed to us, revealed in the last time. Hold on. It's not going to be revealed to us. It's going to be revealed to the world. I love how the Word of God teaches us about what's going to take place 
in the future without mentioning what's going to take place in the future, like the rapture. You see, there's no mention of the rapture here. There's no mention of the Trinity either, but we know there's a Trinity, right? But there's no mention of the rapture here, but it says that it's going to be revealed in the last time. How is it going to be revealed? When the rapture takes place and the Christians are taken off the face of the earth, everyone will know, everyone that has heard will know that the Christians were taken off the face of the earth and they entered into that salvation by faith that they've been talking about all these years. That they kept saying was going to happen. And it finally happened. And it's not just for us. It's for all Christians that have lived. That's why Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds. You see, it's all Christians that will be raptured at that time. And that is the evidence of our salvation for eternity. It's right here. And Peter is writing about it. He just makes a quick statement. And through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And I'm ready for it to be revealed. Are you? Okay. So that's kind of exciting. I'm sorry about this thing. Peter is now going to give those of us who are going through trials some encouragement. And believe me, this is also reminding us that we're going to go through trials. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter begins in telling us in verse 6 that in this you greatly rejoice. Well, it's not in what's coming. He's tying these two pieces together in what we just talked about, the salvation of our souls, eternity based on grace and faith, that's what we greatly rejoice about. And we don't actually greatly rejoice about trials, but we can take joy in trials. We don't have to be completely crushed by a trial. So do we actually greatly rejoice in what we have now? Or do we look and say, well, I am rejoicing for what I have in the future? It's true that our salvation, our eternity, is in the future after we leave this earth, whether we're raptured, whether we die. Eternity begins, and then we're going to experience eternity at that point. But the thing is, we can greatly rejoice today. 
we don't have to wait until then to start rejoicing. We can greatly rejoice for everything we've been given today. Our inheritance, you know, that would be like someone saying, hey, I've got a million-dollar life insurance policy, and when I die, you know, uh, it's all going to you. You're going to get this $10 million insurance policy. Oh, that's even better, 10 times better. And, and so now you're thinking, oh, I can't wait till he dies. <laughs> you know, that would be kind of sad, huh? But, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that you want to be grateful and joyful while they're still alive. And you want to have a relationship while they're still alive appreciating, loving them, and having them part of your life. And so the, the inheritance isn't so much the important part. It's just having them in your life, being grateful for what you will have. And so you still want, and that's where we are today. We should be living our lives grateful today for what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago before we were perfect like we are today. You know? So that's, you know, really, it's, it's hard for us to understand why he would do it. Why he would willingly go to that cross. But I know why. Because there was no other way. He, he, if there was another way, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. If we could work our way into heaven by the things that we do, he wouldn't have had to die. But that, there was no other way. And so now we can celebrate, even though life can be tough at times, we can celebrate. We can greatly rejoice. Notice that Peter says, for a little while we will be grieved by trials, and that sometimes trials are needed in our life. He says that th though now for a little while, if need be, oh, it, it, it may be necessary for us to go through trials and go through struggles. Why would we ever need to be grieved by a trial? Y you know, it, it, it just, why? Why do I have to go through that? Because unless we go through trials we won't naturally feel the need to call out on God. See, if we're not going through a trial, if we don't have any problems in our lives, if, if things are going really good, then we, you know, we don't need to. We may thank him at dinner time, but you know, there isn't any real urgency to go before the Lord. But all of us have had sickness lately, up and down, and it's still going around through the church, and you know the flu and colds, and and the thing is, when we're struggling, we can go before the Lord, and we can ask for strength. We can ask um, Him to intervene on our behalf. But our first instinct is to solve the problems on our own. You know, we go to Nyquil. Or, you know, we go to whatever some of the medications are that are out there to help us get through 
the trial. That's our first instinct, to solve the problem on our own. And if it works, we don't go to the Lord. We've solved the problem. You know, not saying that every problem needs to be solved through prayer. Like if you have a flat tire, you know, you can sit there and pray for quite a while and that may not do it. It's good to have AAA also. <laughs> you know, but God can be there to help because if I get a flat tire, I know my attitude may change. <laughs> Just slightly. And if that happens, I can call on God and say, Lord, bless this. Maybe that AAA guy needs to see some joy in someone's life. Maybe that AAA driver needs to see the love of God being and the joy of God and the peace of God through a trial being lived out in someone's life. Because I'm sure AAA gets there quite often and they're getting yelled at for being late and you you know, why I was sitting here for 30 minutes and, and all this other stuff. And then they get to us and we say, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for doing this and taking care of this. People aren't used to having appreciation and, and seeing the appreciation that can come during those times. But the thing is, we try to solve these problems on our own. And it could become even worse. Such as someone that is struggling with alcohol. And, you know, they, the answer to that is going to an addiction center or drug abuse, or maybe it's marriage problems, and the answer is going through a marriage counselor to discuss the problems, to try to solve the problems. Maybe it's health problems, and I'm going to go to the doctor, and the doctor is going to take care of everything for me. There are all of these different situations that we try to solve by going to people that can help. Maybe it's depression. I'm going to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to try to figure out why I'm depressed and, and to work my way through this. You see, I believe that quite often we put so much emphasis on solving the problem using the world's methods that we miss out on God solving the problem or working in us Sometimes we're going through these very things so we can be drawn into a closer relationship with God. So we can trust him more and so we can learn how he works in our lives. Now, if any of those things have happened to you and you've gone to those solutions, there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use these avenues, these methods. What I'm saying is that we should also identify the spiritual aspect of all of these issues that we need to identify whether or not it's a spiritual problem first. Quite often, the problems that we're experiencing is because our walk with the Lord is not where it needs to be. And that's where we need to focus first. Quite often, when we look at marriage problems, we blame God because we're having marriage problems. We blame God because 
I lost my job. And now God, you know, God wants to give us a good job, a better job, something else, but we lost our job. And so instead of going to the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, what are you going to do through this? I trust you. We blame him and we get bitter and we get frustrated. It's time now to go to him. That's why we experience trials. So he can prove himself strong on our behalf. So he can resolve issues. But whenever we're focused on ourselves, whenever we're going through a trial and we're focused on our own lives, then we lose sight of what God really wants to talk to us about, what God wants to direct us to, the help that God wants to give us. Because we're focused on me, me, me. You know, why me, Lord? You know, and, and we can all get that way. It, it, sometimes it happens in little ways, and sometimes it happens in big ways. Why, Lord? Why does this person have to be in front of me and they don't know that a stop sign is never going to turn green? Just go! Go! It's your turn! It was your turn three times ago! You know, and sometimes we can get frustrated over little things. And sometimes it's big things. But when we know who's in charge of everything, it's a lot easier to understand we need to go through trials because we need to call out on the Lord. And the thing is, the Lord wants us to call out to him for any trial or even for things that are just potential trials. You know, Lord, I, I don't know if I'm going to have a job in two weeks because things are tight with the company. You know, Lord, it is, you know, but I trust you. And we see how God just works things out when we trust him, when we put our faith in him. So Christians go through trials the same way the world does. There, there are no different trials. Well, oh, you're going through Christian trials and they're going through worldly trials. No, it's, it's all trials. We all go through the same kind of trials. It's how we come out of it. It's where we put our faith when we're in the midst of the trial. So the trial comes to test believers. It tests us not as a test, oh, you failed, you know, you're three steps back. That's not how the test works. The test is to teach us what we believe, where our faith is, where our strength is. It's so that we are testing ourselves through the trials and we're seeing what God is doing through these trials. Peter says when our faith is tested by fire that we recognize that it is much more precious than the gold that perishes. You see, gold, although gold is, well, you know, it, it's worth a lot, it's beautiful, and it's really nice to have, but it perishes. And our faith is tested, but our faith brings us into a relationship with Jesus Christ into eternity. It doesn't perish. It's going to be with us forever. In verse 8, we're told that even though we don't see Jesus, we believe and rejoice with joy for his salvation. And that's where our peace and contentment come from. 
It comes from the joy that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're struggling to find joy in your relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not his fault. You see, he has given us all of the tools for us to experience joy. We have it all. We just have to put them to use. Uh, and the tools, we, we begin with the grace of God that pours out on us. Faith in him and prayer. We can pray to him at any time. And he's going to hear our prayer. He's going to answer our prayer. He is faithful to do all those things. And he continues working in our lives. It, he doesn't stop ever as a Christian, he's always going to be working in our lives. The problem is, is that sometimes he's working in the same area over and over and over again because we've never gotten out of that area. He's like, come on, let's get out of the garage. We got to go clean the kitchen. Oh no, there are still oil spots everywhere. There is still, we still got to work out here. But he wants to take care of the whole house. He wants to take care of every area of our lives. We've got to let him. So Peter now reflects further on our salvation in verse 10, where he says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired, and search carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what, or what matter of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. This is so deep that I could spend days talking about this section of Scripture. It, it is, the prophets, they wanted to know more about salvation. They wanted to understand salvation. And they had the Holy Spirit ministering to them because that's how they were able to write prophecy. That's how they were able to write what they did. But they weren't writing for themselves because the Messiah didn't come while they were writing these things. The Messiah didn't come for hundreds of years later. So they were writing for the apostles in the future who took what they wrote and recognized the Messiah and then saw the fulfillment of the prophecies written by the prophets in the birth of the Messiah, in the life of the Messiah, in the ministry of... And then they, in turn, taught everyone the truth through the leading of the Holy Spirit so that they had the prophecies from the, the prophets in the Old Testament, and then they had the witness of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They had the whole story, and now they were able to share it 
and teach it. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He's, he's talking about the fact that the prophets even knew that they weren't going to see the evidence of the Messiah in their time. They knew it. But they were writing not for themselves, but for the future. And I think that's awesome. That's exciting. Even the, the New Testament prophets, the guys that wrote the New Testament, they were writing knowing that Jesus... See, when, when Paul first started writing, he was expecting Jesus to return at every, any time. But at the end of his writings, as he was getting older and he realized through the Holy Spirit that Jesus wasn't going to come in his lifetime, then his writing changed a little bit. It didn't change what the scripture meant. It applied to those people then and it applies to us today. The exciting thing is that it hasn't completed yet. All of prophecy has not been fulfilled, whether some Old Testament prophecy or even New Testament prophecy has not been fulfilled today. We've seen many prophecies fulfilled, and as we see them fulfilled, we get excited. We look back and Israel becoming a nation. We can get excited. This is prophecy being fulfilled. And we know that we're even closer to the return of Christ. And then we watch the news and we can see prophecy fulfilled. Not so much that these Christian prophecies are being fulfilled, but the prophecies are being fulfilled that say that the world is going to be in the shape that it's in today. That the world is going to be focused on itself. That man is going to be calling evil good and good evil. And that's what we're seeing before us today. We're seeing the, the world in retrograde. We see that the world is diminishing. But we also see that the Lord has set everything up for his return. And we're right there on the cusp of it. And it says that angels were trying to understand these things. It, it says things which angels desire to look into. You know, see, angels are created beings and they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're created differently than we are. But we have the Holy Spirit. That's confusing to them. They don't understand it. They can't grasp it. Just like I couldn't grasp being an angel. I have a fear of heights. I can't fly. But... I think God is going to take that away when the rapture happens. I hope so. Ah! Yeah, but it, it'll go quick. So angels are trying to grasp the whole plan of God. And they see it being lived out in humans. And they're just amazed. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul writes, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. A spectacle to angels. Angels are like, what's up with those humans? You see, angels are probably even confused as how a human would be willing to die and, and, and would be willing to be martyred and not deny Christ. 
you know, wow, you're going to be killed. You're going to be tortured. And that's what happened to the apostles. Because they wouldn't deny Christ. Angels couldn't figure out. It's not part of their nature to figure it out. They were created for the purpose that God created them for. And we have free will to choose. And that's something that they're not sure of. So the other thing that angels don't have, an inheritance. We have an inheritance that was given to us by God. And that's something that I'm excited about. The fact that we become children of the living God. Angels will never become that. And they're kind of confused about that, I'm sure. But it says that they celebrate every time someone comes to salvation, that there's joy in heaven. So we're challenged to consider a few teaching, uh, a few um, of the things that we learned in our teaching today. One, as the elect of God, we should separate ourselves from the world. We shouldn't be doing what the world does. We should stand separate. Number two, we should stand strong in the grace of God that was given to us through faith because we are children of God. It's not we are going to become children of God. We are now children of God. And number three, even in trials we can rejoice because we know that God is working through those trials to develop our faith. And the stronger our faith is, the less impact the world is going to have in our lives. The less things are going to bother us in the world. The stronger our faith the more our vision sees eternity and sees what we have coming. Everybody has this built into them. It's just the fact that it's only believers that receive it and accept it for themselves. Peter uses this portion of scripture to remind us that we have the perfect inheritance that was given to us from God, and God is going to fulfill that promise. It's going to happen because he doesn't ever break his promises. We close with Ecclesiastes 3.11 and it tells us that he has put eternity in our hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. He has put eternity into our hearts. But while we're here on earth, we're not going to know God's plan from beginning to end. He's given us glimpses of what his plan is through his word. But until we actually arrive, we're not going to know what it means to us. But the good news is one day we will arrive. Amen?